We're kicking off a new series this morning in 1st and 2nd Samuel, which was originally one book. We have it as two in the Old Testament. It's really telling the story of Israel moving from a theocracy to a monarchy. And there's profound narratives there. Most people who know a little bit about Samuel think of Samuel himself, Saul, and King David. The series title is The King's Heart, but you're going to see more than the king's heart. You're going to see the hearts of many people through the narratives. You're going to see your own heart, but above all, and most importantly, you're going to see the heart of the king, the heart of God. So 1 Samuel begins this way. There is a weeping woman. She is weeping so hard that if you were in her presence, you would know something is devastatingly wrong. She is weeping bitter tears. Her husband can't fix her. He's trying. He too is brokenhearted. And there's a priest. And the priest has troubles of his own. His two sons, who are also priests, are immoral. They're living the kind of life that would make the headlines that we see. They're wicked men. And then there's the people of Israel themselves, who in the last verses of Judges, we're told... Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. So that's the world in which this book, 1 Samuel, is recorded. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I will begin in 1 Samuel 1, read through verse 20. Use your own Bible. I encourage you to bring those or the pew Bible that's in front or here as it's printed in the bulletin. As I read, lean into the story and picture all the characters, feel the emotion, really get a sense for what is happening. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, But Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten... And drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As we kick off this series in 1 Samuel, it might be worth grabbing a couple of resources to follow along. We're going to be in this book for quite some time. Dale Ralph Davis is a commentary that I enjoy. It's in our bookstore, as well as our own Kay Gabrish's study on First and Second Samuel, which is beautiful. I think you would be deeply encouraged by the way the Lord has used that book and her life really to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And this is what First and Second Samuel is. It's an Old Testament book, but all Old Testament books are a part of the history of redemption, always pointing to the person of Jesus, the King. And so we begin, 1 Samuel 1, Hannah. I really want you to understand Hannah's life. She is one of two women married to this man, Elkanah. The word tells us that she is barren. The Lord has closed her womb. As a result of that, she is living the horror of wanting to have children, but not being able to. A horror which some, even in our midst, have experienced. And it's heart-wrenching. And I think it's really important to be sensitive to that. That pain is something that you can relate to that most of us can't, yet we have that fear. God's grace is powerful and sufficient, but it really is what leads her to this place of deep despair. But there's something significant happening in this story of this barren woman. And this is it. Del Ralph Davis says, barren women seem to be God's instrument in raising up key figures in the history of redemption. Hannah, therefore, shares in a fellowship of barrenness. And it is frequently in this fellowship that chapters in Yahweh's history with his people begin. And they begin with nothing. It's really significant. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Did you hear that? God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. You see, total inability equals helplessness. Hannah cannot make herself pregnant. She wants to be pregnant. Penina, her rival, is always pregnant. 
And this woman is married to the same man. And this woman provokes Hannah, even when they're on their way to worship. How dark is that? And here, Hannah, the author of 1 Samuel tells us, is in deep, deep distress. The author could have used one or two words to simply say, this is the condition of her soul. She's sad. She's anxious. But he doesn't. He uses nine to ten different phrases to describe how brokenhearted this woman is. Let's look at them together, beginning at verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Peninnah used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. There are times in our life when the pain is so great, the weeping is so great that we cannot physically eat. The body doesn't lie. When there's that much pain, the reality is the body responds. Her suffering is so great because of the provoking of this woman that's really evil that she is weeping bitter tears. She has no appetite for food. Even though food is part of the celebration, she can't eat it. She doesn't want any part of it. So the text tells us she wept and would not eat. In verse 8, her husband comes to her and he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And then he says, why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? And the answer is no, you're not. Being married to you, and you've been kind to me. You give me a double portion. You tell me you love me. It's not enough. There's something else. I want a son. The verses continue in Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Maybe you've had moments like that in your life where you really were so distressed that the weeping in your heart and the physical reality of that could only be described as bitter tears, weeping bitterly. Verse 11, as Hannah prays to the Lord, she says, look on the affliction of your servant. She has been afflicted with a closed womb. And she has been afflicted with another woman whose mouth is open. And out of her mouth continually comes provocation, insult. Can you hear it? Can you imagine what this woman says when she sees Hannah in pain? In her own words, as Hannah continues to pray, Eli watches on. He rebukes her because he misses it and thinks she's drunk. She then speaks in verse 15 and says, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And then in verse 16, she says, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So nine to ten different times, the author tells us, she is weeping, she won't eat, the tears are bitter, she is deeply distressed and weeping bitterly, she is afflicted, she's troubled in spirit, she has great anxiety and vexation. That's the condition of Hannah. Because that is the condition of Hannah, other people in this story are also consumed. Her husband, Elkanah, we've mentioned already, 
brings to her a double portion. He loves her. Here, he doesn't understand. I'm good to you. How can I help you? Well, the truth is, he's incapable. He's tried everything he can. He's unable. Then you have this woman, the one who is provoking her. How dark is her heart? What's motivating her to be so cruel? Not just once. Notice the text says, year after year. So year after year as this time comes to go and worship, her thrill is making little, degrading, provoking this other wife. Is it because she's deeply insecure of her own relationship? I don't know. I have no idea what's going on in her heart, but it's wicked. It's really dark. When your eyes should be fixed on worshiping the living God, but instead they're fixed on bringing pain to another, something's really sick, and she's sick. She's not the only one, though. There's Eli. And you don't see it yet, but this priest who's sitting in the temple has two sons, and his sons are in utter rebellion against God and their priest, and the acts that they're engaged in are unspeakable. So that's the story. Let's go back to Hannah. Hannah, given the description that this text tells us, responds. How is she going to respond? How do you respond? When you've had those moments in your life when you really felt helpless, when you couldn't change the way you were feeling, when you couldn't create something that wasn't being created, when you couldn't fix your spouse, when you weren't sure at work how things were going to go, and the injustice that was all around you, you weren't sure how to respond to, you felt paralyzed. Where do you go? What do you do? Hannah, in the most profound way, tells us more about the history of redemption than just one woman's struggle with barrenness. She is revealing to us as the Lord is moving through her this profound picture of how God is going to restore his kingdom. Hannah moves towards the Lord. Verse 9, after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And I think this is important to say. If we don't carefully study passages and really ask the Holy Spirit's guidance, we can take things out of context and begin to say things that the text never implied. And there's several here that are very important to pay attention to. First, Hannah rose. Sometimes we tend to live with this mentality that somewhere in the Bible, it tells us simply to pull up our bootstraps. You know, Hannah, she just had to suck it up. She just had to pull it up. She just had to get strong. My friends, that's not it. Hannah rose because there was grace in her life. There was grace in her life that was moving in a way that she couldn't see that enabled her to have the power to know that I can't stay here. And so she rose. She rose because something inside her was rising. And she went to the place, the only place that she knew she could go. She went to the temple of the Lord. Hannah rising is important for us to see 
because she didn't stay stuck. But she didn't stay stuck because of some power within her that was of herself. It was God's power beginning to work in her. And she moves towards the temple. Now, this is incredible. Watch how she prays. Because we need to learn to pray this way. First, she's honest. We're not a very honest people. And I'm sick of it. I just am. I'm so sick of our culture and the ways in which we hide behind what's really going on inside us. What's wrong with us? Why do we feel like we are so unsafe? Why do we feel like we can't truly come even to a pastor or to a friend and say, it's not going well. I'm having thoughts that I never thought I would have. I am so doubtful, so distracted, so depressed, so anxious, so scared, but so is everybody else around me. So this must be normal. It is not what God intended for us. It's not. And somebody must proclaim enough is enough. Stop living in this bondage of dishonesty. My point is this, it's one thing to be dishonest with people, we're even dishonest with God. As we enter into praying with God, we don't feel the freedom to say, this is what I'm thinking and it's really dark. This is what I'm feeling and it really scares me. This is what I want and I think it might be what you want, but I'm not sure. We don't feel the freedom to do that. Why? Because we're not truly abiding in Christ with the full abundance that he offers us. Hannah has had enough. She can't take it anymore. So she rises. She goes to the temple. And when she gets to the temple, she is honest. When's the last time you had an honest conversation with God? Now, some of you even right now are going, ooh, I don't, I don't like that language. Well, you should, because God has given us his word and his spirit to commune with us, to tell us the truth, to convict our spirit, to give us hope. God speaks. He never speaks apart from his word. He never says things that are altered to his word, but he speaks. He's leading us. He wants to commune with us. Hannah is having an honest conversation with God. And prayer is nothing more than communion and communication with God, period. It is us as God's children laying our burdens before him, telling him what he already knows about us. That's what's so bizarre. Do you know, we, we tend to keep secrets from God. We tend to try to clean ourselves up before we go to God. Remember, my friends, there's nothing God can learn. You can learn a lot, like me, but nothing God can learn. I don't know my own heart. God can learn nothing about my heart. So the foolishness of not being free before him, to be honest before him, is utterly insane. It just is. He knows everything. Everything. Hannah goes before the living God and she's honest. 
my good friend Skeet Tingle, who runs Sky Ranch, where we do those silent retreats and family camp is the one who frequently says to me, when's the last time you had an honest conversation with God? Another way of saying it is, what does your soul want to say to the Lord? What did Hannah's soul want to say to the Lord? I want a son. I'm tired of this woman. I'm tired of this affliction. Will you look on me? Will you have mercy? And then she moves towards a vow. Verse 11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and do not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This is also an area where really bad teaching could exist because you could leave saying this. If I pray earnestly and I weep bitterly about a pain in my life, and I make a vow to God that this is what I will do if you will do this, you miss the point. God is not giving us instructions here about the vows that we could make, conditions that essentially that we could give God. And if he would put those forth in an affirmative answer, we would do the following. You've probably done that. Probably at some point in your life. God, if you will, and God might have said yes, he might have said no. But in this case, Hannah made that vow. What's really remarkable is he's going to say yes. What's even more remarkable is he's going to give her the grace to fulfill her part of the bargain, right? She really will give her son as a servant to the Lord. Hannah's honest in her prayer. We can learn from that. She's also very specific in her prayer. Her prayer comes from the heart and her prayer reveals in the most profound way her helplessness. One of the reasons we struggle to be honest, one of the reasons I struggle to be honest is that we don't like to appear helpless. As a pastor, I've learned something about being vulnerable where I know that if I'm vulnerable to a certain point, it will help people be vulnerable. There's a serious temptation there though, that is to give the appearance of vulnerability, but not really be vulnerable. I'm never this side of heaven going to be in a place where I am free of being helpless, ever. I'm always going to be able to be a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, a better preacher, a better shepherd, a better son, a better friend. And the list goes on and on. The same is true of you. And in order for me to grow in any one of those areas, the place I must start is my absolute inability. Period. O. Halsby, in a book simply called Prayer, written in 1931, I think over 50 different editions have been printed over the years, speaks about helplessness. Listen to what he says. In the first place, helplessness unquestionably 
is the first and the surest, surest indication of a praying heart. Listen, my friend, he says, your helplessness is your best prayer. It calls from your heart to the heart of God with greater effect than all your uttered pleas. He hears it from the very moment that you are seized with helplessness and he becomes actively engaged at once in hearing and answering the prayer of your helplessness. But we hate helplessness. We love being the person that, I don't really need that. We don't need re-engage. We don't need a redemption group. We don't need to come down and ask pastors and others to pray for us. I'm astonished when I ask someone, how can I pray for you? And it happens more than you would think. I don't really need anything. People say that. And I really pray hard for them. We, this side of heaven, are constantly going to be in need of prayer. Fervent prayer. Prayers of helplessness. Where do you feel helpless right now? Is it in your marriage? Is it with your children? Have they gone off the rails? Is it in your desires that there's something you want that the Lord just hasn't granted? Is it in your emotions? Is it at work? Is it in your finances? Is it in your stage of life? I don't know, but I know that we all experience it. So we need to go where Hannah goes, to God. And we need to be honest with God, and you can. My friends, you're free to be honest with him. And you can be specific. And I promise you that God will answer your prayer. I don't know if the answer is going to be yes. I don't know if it's going to be wait. I don't know if it's going to be no. But I know he will answer it. And I know the one who answers it is good. And he does good. And so Eli, the priest, a fleshly human representative pointing ultimately to the great high priest one day, Caesar praying. And it troubles me that he can't detect that she is a grieving woman. And so he thinks she's drunk. And he speaks, verse 14, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And I love Hannah's boldness here. No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Eli had missed it. But he repents, essentially. He changes direction, and he says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Go in peace. And she does. And just like you could tell the vexation and the anxiety and the distress on her face, now you can see the peace. She has met with her father in heaven. She has met with the God of Israel. The priest now knows what was happening, blesses her, and she walks away. The story where it ends for us today is that Hannah conceives a child and she names him Samuel. 
because she asked for him from the Lord. She had no idea that this boy that she would offer to the Lord would one day be this prophet and priest for the people of Israel who would be used by God to usher in this new chapter in the history of redemption. All pointing to another barren woman, a woman named Elizabeth who couldn't conceive until visited by an angel. And later in life, she's with child. The child in her womb would be named specifically by the father who would come out after being mute and say, his name is John. He will point the way to another impossible pregnancy, a woman who is a virgin, who has growing in her a child named Jesus. And the child named Jesus is going to be born and he's going to live and he's going to die after living a perfect life. And he's going to be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. And while in heaven where he is right now, reigning as our king, the king, his heart is revealed. And his heart is revealed when the word of God tells us that he lives to intercede on our behalf. He knows everything about you. He died for everything about you. And he is a priest, but different than Eli. He never misses it. He never gets it wrong. He also, when we come to him, doesn't dismiss us and tell us to go on our way without him. His spirit lives in us. He's with us. And this priest, who's living to intercede on your behalf, is inviting you this day to come and be honest with him and listen to him, and tell him the burdens of your life, and trust him that he's going to say yes, or no, or wait. But in the meantime, promising you that he's with you, that he's leading you, that he will never forsake you. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> 